Amen. Well, I'm turning this morning to the New Testament book of Philemon. The book of Philemon this morning. We're going to begin a, a new expositional series on this very small uh, but very powerful uh, book of the New Testament. Uh, this particular epistle primarily is uh, known to have been written by the Apostle Paul uh, when he was a prisoner at Rome. But we'll also see in the introduction of this particular epistle that Timothy is also acknowledged to have had at least some part uh, in the penning of this letter. Uh, we will see throughout this particular book uh, that this is unlike many of Paul's writings in that it is uh, not written specifically to an individual church. Um, it's not being written to necessarily teach uh, a great doctrinal truth. Uh, but it is a letter that is being written on behalf of a former runaway slave. Uh, the beauty of Philemon, I truly believe, is found in the tender and compassionate heart of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Philemon is one of those books that really proves and demonstrates whether we truly have true faith. Because true faith is never inoperative. True faith is never a dead faith. True faith always gives evidence of the faith which is now in possession. Uh, there's a lot of ways you can approach an introduction to a particular book. Uh, sometimes when I introduce a new book, I will give a lot of the background. I'll sometimes give uh, the dates of what this was expected to have been written, and I'll give a lot of background. Uh, today and through this series, my approach is going to be a little bit different. Not that those things do not matter, uh, but I want us to really think about uh, the compassion and the tenderness of the Apostle Paul. And I want us to consider how that when Paul wrote these words, this is that same uh, man that we refer to today as one of the great men of the faith. Uh, we consider him one of, if not uh, one of the most prolific writers of the Scriptures because so many of the New Testament epistles are written by the Apostle Paul. And of course, uh, Paul, I believe, could identify uh, with the man he's writing on behalf of uh, because this man was a runaway slave. This man had stolen from his master had fled, was guilty of really a crime against his master, and yet Paul demonstrates the forgiveness and the compassion that ought to be extended to someone who was a former runaway. I think you can see the connection that the Apostle Paul understood what it was to once be a runaway and knows what it is now to be a servant of God. The change in the Apostle Paul from when he was Saul to the time when he became the apostle that we are so familiar with was quite extreme as to what had happened to him. So as we look at this book, this is the shortest of uh, Paul's epistles. Um, and I do want us just to read this very first opening verse. We're going to deal with more verses than that today. But notice what, how Paul begins this letter. And this is very striking and very important that we notice the words that he uses. He says, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow 
laborer. This Philemon is a man who was a very wealthy citizen of the town or the city of Colossae. And he's writing this personal letter to this man, Philemon. Again, this is not written to a church as a whole. It's not meant to necessarily demonstrate a great doctrinal truth. But we do know, and as we'll learn from the text, that we know that Philemon's servant uh, is a man by the name of Onesimus. And what we're going to learn and see is that Onesimus had stolen from his master. And while he was on the run, he arrived at Rome. And by God's divine providence, he finds himself under the preaching of the Apostle Paul. How would that be? In possession of stolen items, and then finding yourself under the preaching ministry of the Apostle Paul, who at this moment was in prison. That's why Paul makes mention of a prisoner of Jesus Christ, although Paul also considered him a himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ, even when he was not in bonds or behind bars. But while he was at Rome, this Onesimus hears Paul preach. Onesimus, we learn, is converted and begins to manifest saving evidences or starts to show grace that leads Paul to declare in Philemon verse, uh, chapter, uh, verses 11 through 13 that he says he was once unprofitable, but he's so profitable now, I would keep him with me. So Paul makes mention of a runaway slave who was a thief who says he has now become so profitable, I would keep him. But yet he sends him back, returns him to Philemon, and he sends him back to Philemon, begging Philemon, not commanding him. This is very important. Paul could have used his apostolic authority and could have said to Philemon, who was a beloved brother, he could have said, I command you by the apostolic authority given to me by God that you take Onesimus back. That's not what Paul does. Paul says, I beg you, I entreat you, that you take Onesimus back. Receive him as a reconciled brother. Receive him as a beloved brother the same way in which I refer to you. Verse 16, we'll talk more about this, but I just want you to look briefly here, and this sees really the heart of this epistle. Regarding Onesimus, now not as a servant but above a servant, a brother beloved, specially to me, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Receive this runaway slave as a beloved brother. Now this is considered to be one of Paul's most private letters, um, but it's still the inspired word of God. Um, it was not written necessarily uh, with the idea of many, many people seeing this letter, although God by inspiration has given it to us, and now we read it as part of the recognized canon of the Word of God. But Paul begins by very wisely speaking of himself, a prisoner. Now, Paul as a prisoner knew what it was to be in chains and in bondage, for the gospel. 
He knew what it was to actually suffer as a servant. He knew what it was to actually be in chains, but he also considered himself to be a prisoner to the Lord Jesus Christ. But imagine if you're Philemon and you receive a letter from a man who's in prison. A man who's probably got chains around his feet and he's got a, maybe has a chain around his neck and he's writing about reconciliation. And he's writing about forgiveness. And he's writing about compassion. He's not writing anything about himself. He's writing about how Philemon should receive his runaway servant who took from him an untold amount of riches and possessions. This man now is to be treated as a beloved brother. Um, To treat someone as a beloved brother is to treat them as one who's been saved by the same grace that you've been saved by. It's an amazing thing how much more grace we extend to ourselves that we do not extend to others who are reconciled to Christ. We are much more forgiving of our past sins. We're much more forgiving of our sin by saying, you know, um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a new man. I've been converted. But we're supposed to demonstrate that same sort of reconciliation towards another brother or sister in Christ who comes to know what that saving grace is. We are very easily able to forgive ourselves. We're very easy in being able to excuse our past behavior and say, but now look what I am in Christ. Paul's teaching us a lesson about how we ought to treat, especially not only those who are in the beloved, but those who were once considered a runaway. Those who were once out of the body of Christ. Paul's letter, I think we could certainly define it as Paul's letter and a bit of a salute to a man of true faith. He writes and he identifies that Philemon is a man of faith. As a matter of fact, we'll see two very simple headings this morning that Paul appeals to Philemon's love, first of all, and then he acknowledges Philemon's faith. Now, Paul writes to Philemon this way because he knows true believers demonstrate those two things, faith and love. True believers always demonstrate faith and love. There is no true belief if there's no faith and there's no love. But you'll notice that as Paul begins this appeal in verse number 1 through verse number 3, as he calls himself this prisoner of Christ, he uses that terminology the same way that he does in his other epistles when he calls himself an apostle of Christ. That's why I pointed this out to you. Paul could have very easily addressed this letter to Philemon and said, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That would have come with an extra level of authority. But he says, I'm writing to you as a prisoner. See, we don't fully understand apostolic authority in our day and age because we're not getting apostolic letters specifically. But when we see the Word of God and we see Paul acting on behalf of the authority God gave him, remember, apostleship was God-granted not man-possessed. Man didn't choose to be an apostle. God called him to be an apostle. It is not insignificant that Paul uses the term a prisoner of Jesus Christ instead of using the term an apostle. But you'll notice he still, he wants us to identify and he wants Philemon to identify that the chains in which he was now bound under, under were there because of the very gospel that saved him. 
The chains of the gospel is the reason why Paul was in prison. Paul had done nothing but been a preacher of the gospel. He had done nothing but been a preacher of righteousness. And yet, the very thing that is in, has got him in chains is the very gospel in which he is now so elevating and saying, this is the glory of God in the fact of the gospel, yet he's in prison. I'm always convicted when I see Paul use terminology like this because I wonder if I were in prison for the gospel of Christ, would I be pleading on behalf of a newly reconciled brother in Christ or would I be pleading for my own release? And I think we're probably, if we're all honest today, we're more, ten, we're more likely that we would be pleading, somebody come get me out of this prison. Yet every time Paul found himself in prison, he never asked to come get him. In the book of Philippians, he writes about the joy. He said, do not let my bonds, don't let my bonds in Christ be a hindrance to you, but rather realize these things that have happened unto me have happened unto me for the furtherance of the gospel. That's a man who has mature faith. See, mature faith doesn't ask for a release from prison. A mature faith is actually pleading on behalf of other reconciled brothers and sisters. That's exactly what Paul does. It was by the Lord's will that Paul was in prison. Paul acknowledges that. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. He was not ashamed to be in prison by that. But rather, Paul, we learn from his other writings, actually counted it a privilege. Think about this. He counted a privilege to suffer for the cause of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 12, when Paul wrote to that church, he begins that letter by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. That means everything that happens to him, he realizes is as a result of the will of God. But 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, here's what Paul says. He says, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure. And I want you to listen to what Paul is saying here. I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then... And we might say, then and only then am I strong. Paul rejoiced. He took pleasure in affliction. He took pleasure in being imprisoned. He counted it a joy to suffer for Christ. Now, we also see in that opening verse of Philemon that Paul makes mention of Timothy. Notice he uses the phrase, and Timothy, our brother. Again, Paul is relating and appealing to Philemon's standing in Christ as well. Philemon is a believer. Timothy was with Paul and in some form had a part in writing this epistle. Now it's up for debate how much of the letter Timothy actually penned and how much of it actually Paul penned, but there's a belief that Timothy at least had some part in the writing of this letter. And of course, uh, Timothy was uh, thoroughly uh, un understood Paul to be his uh, spiritual mentor. Uh, but it was well known 
uh, to Philemon that Timothy and Paul were brothers. That's why Paul, as he's writing to Philemon, he says, our brother unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and our fellow laborer. And he says this is unto Philemon. Um, Philemon, we read a little bit about him. We, we don't know um, a lot of his background, but he is said to have been a Gentile. He was a Colossian. He was very wealthy. He was very respected. But he was also known for his hospitality. Now this man, Paul calls a fellow laborer. He calls him a beloved brother. Fellow laborers and beloved brothers in the gospel should be treated that way. We should treat fellow laborers in the gospel as brothers and sisters in Christ. This idea of bitterness and spite towards other brothers and sisters in Christ is just not biblical. It's sin. To just deny the reality that another brother or sister in Christ has been saved, saved by the same grace that you've been saved and to neglect or to insult them because they're not completely like you. Philemon is called by Paul, this fellow laborer. And Philemon, of course, in some way was involved with Paul in the gospel and its ministry. In Philemon verse 2, a a woman by the name of Aphia is mentioned. It's believed that this woman was the wife of Philemon. She's placed directly next to him and before a man named Archippus, who was also a minister of the word. So there's reason to believe that Philemon and his wife, Aphia, had the same mind concerning how do we deal with this runaway slave Onesimus? Paul's acknowledging that there should be a common reception of him. This husband and wife should be in like-mindedness to receive Onesimus back. Archippus is one that we see in other epistles as a minister of the word. So there really is this principle of having the same mind and the same heart being in one accord with what do you do with a runaway slave who robbed you. Now it's easy for us to sit and say today, well, I know what I would do. Of course I'd receive him back. Of course, no hard feelings, no grudges, no harm, no offense taken. We're always spirit we always are more spiritually strong in our own head than we really are. We we always think, here's what I would do if. And the reality is none of us know what we would do if until the if presents itself before us. When we sometimes arrogantly look at people being persecuted and we see them for a moment, their faith wavers, or they begin to be tossed to and fro, we immediately say, you know, if that was me, my faith would not waver. I would be completely steadfast and sure. And I would say, be very careful about having confidence in your own standing until it actually occurs. Because you don't know what you'll do. You have no idea what you'll do until it's actually on you. It's the pious Christian that says, I would have received Onesimus back. As a matter of fact, I am so holy and righteous, I wouldn't have needed a letter from Paul. I would just take him back. 
No, I think we all need to be instructed by this because it's not our natural inclination to even receive a reconciled brother who was once a runaway, was once a thief. Remember Paul's testimony when his testimony followed him everywhere he went. When Paul would stand up to preach, people would say, aren't you the one that persecuted people of that way? Some of the other disciples were a little bit leery of Paul because they were afraid this is the man that tried to kill us at one point. Can we really trust him? Paul knew what it was to be reconciled and knew what it was to be accepted by other brothers in Christ. And now Paul is writing and showing evidence of the same example. Archippus, as I mentioned to you, is believed to have been a preacher of the gospel and a minister of the church. Colossians 4.17 tells us about his ministry there. But Paul, I believe, is addressing this letter also to him because of his relationship with the family of Philemon and also Onesimus' new relationship with the church. Because notice there's a reference made to the church in thy house. Uh, Now this is not... Uh, the justification for the home church movement, just so we're all aware. Uh, That's not what's happening here. Uh, This is the reality that the church that is in thy house here is a reference to Philemon had a very large household of people. This included family, this included servants, this included children, this included visitors. And they did assemble there. They did come together. But there was so many of them there that there were believers who were of the like faith. They were in communion one with another. And this is the very same form in which Paul usually begins his letters. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the same form of salutation that Paul uses in many of his other letters. Grace to you. What does it mean if we wish to one another grace to you? It's the prayer for an increase of grace, not being more saved, but rather an increase of grace that leads to a greater exercise of grace. When I say to you, Grace to you, I'm not saying be saved over and over again. Grace unto you means my prayer for you is is that you will continue to grow in this grace and exercise it to a greater degree than you've done before. See, our grace is supposed to grow. Grace is not stagnant. Grace is not inoperative. Either is faith. And yet this increase must be an increase. Why? Because the very grace in which we have is supposed to be growing. And we always stand in need of more of it. Now again, I'm not saying you need more saving grace. What I am saying to you is we need to grow in that grace. Peter writes about growth in grace. Writes about that the exercise of it, we're growing in our sanctifying process. These things are increasing. Paul is not using that term just in a conventional, habitual way, but rather this is what he always would wish upon other believers. But what's this word peace mean? Peace here is a reference to the peace with God through Christ. It's to have peace in our own conscience. It's to have peace also with one another. Folks, the same source of all grace is also the same source of all peace, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You can't have one without the other. You are not going to have grace without peace. And you cannot have peace without grace. That grace and peace comes from the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done. Paul is appealing in these first three verses to Philemon's love. In verse 4, Paul through verse number 7, there's the acknowledgement of Philemon's faith. Notice what Paul teaches us in verse 4. I thank my God making mention of thee always in my prayers. Now there's no doubt that Paul was a man of prayer. There's no doubt that Paul was a man who spent a lot of time in prayer. But I'm going to make this statement based upon the letters that we see, the epistles that we read. Paul prayed for others more than he prayed for himself. We typically have that backwards. Again, we are very good at praying for ourselves. We are very good at praying for the prosperity of ourselves. Paul prayed more for others than he did for himself. And he prayed not weak prayers, not temporal things. He prayed with the will of God in mind. He prayed that God's will would become their will, that God's will would be the very reason for their stance. He prayed for not only individuals, but he prayed for the churches. He prayed for the ministers of the gospel. Read the epistles, especially in Ephesians chapter 1 and Philippians chapter 1. When Paul makes mention, uh, we've referenced the one in uh, Ephesians a number of times, but here's what it says in Philippians 1, verses 3 and 4, very similar. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Notice Paul said, I give thanks, my God, and I give thanks for you. That really, there are two very important characteristics that Paul is demonstrating here. His faith and love for others. Paul now begins a sort of a praising of Philemon's testimony. Verse 5. Hearing of thy love and faith. What Paul says is, I, Philemon, I've heard about your love and I've heard about your faith, which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints. Now, this is a very simple praise that Paul has for Philemon. And it's very brief in that it concludes that this should be the whole character of a believer. Faith and love. Faith and love. It's really not complicated. Faith and love. Paul says, I've heard of it. I've heard of your faith. I've heard of your love. It consists faith in Christ and love towards one another. That love towards one another seems to be where we get hung up. That's where we have our problem. If I was to ask you today, do you have faith in Christ? Do you love the Lord? Most of us would say, well, sure, I love the Lord. What's not to love about the Lord? 
But if I say, do we have love for one another as we should, like 1 John teaches us, do we have love for the brethren? Because you'll know that John writes in that epistle that that's the way you know if you've passed from death unto life. It's not whether you pray to prayer at an altar, but whether you have love for the brethren. That won't bring down the house at the tent meeting, but that's exactly, that's exactly what true evidence of real faith is. If you say you do not love the brother, then God is not in you. If you say, I hate brothers and sisters in Christ, I hate other believers, you cannot have the love of God in you. It cannot be present. Yet Paul acknowledges here, all of the responsibilities and all the actions and duties of our life relate to our faith and love. Paul makes that a very central theme of every letter that he wrote. He never wrote a letter without referencing faith in Christ and love towards one another. Uh, in the book of Ephesians 1.15, Paul makes mention of that very thing. He says that, uh, wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, or the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints. He told the church at Ephesus, there are the characteristics of a true believer. Faith, we understand, looks to Christ because we know that through Him is the only way of salvation. And we also know through Christ is the only way we can know the Father. We know that in Christ alone is the only way that we can have eternal life. But this love portion, this love aspect that Paul is now demonstrating towards Onesimus and how he's reminding Philemon of. Oftentimes we are willing to compromise on what God's Word says. And they said, okay, I'll love the saints, but that's my limit. I'll love the other beloved, but I'm not going to love the non-believer. Our love is not to be limited. The believer is supposed to love all men. But particularly, we do learn that those that are the household of faith, we are to especially love other brothers and sisters in Christ. But a lot of times we do limit that. We have limits. All right, I'll love the other believers who I like, the other believers who are acceptable. We're to love every believer. If they're in the family of God, they are to be loved. Now again, what is our first instinct is to always test whether someone is or is not really a believer. How many times have we found ourselves in our own life distrusting someone's conversion? Someone the other day just said this to me and they said, I wonder if it, and I, I don't like this terminology, but it's common. I wonder if their conversion will stick. Shame on us. It's not for you and I to determine whose conversion is quote-unquote authentic just based upon what we think should be happening in their life. Someone that tells me that they have trusted in Christ alone and they've repented of their sins, 
They are acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. You realize the whole world's not doing that, right? If they are placing their entire hope and faith in Christ Jesus alone, why am I still searching to whether or not their conversion was real? You know what would happen in most of our churches today if Onesimus, if we got a message that, hey, one of your congregation was out somewhere and he stole from his master and he's coming back now and you need to receive him because while he was gone, he was converted. Do we easily take the thief back in without any doubts, any questions at all and say, certainly we'll receive him in because this man, Paul, now says this man was converted. Or would we sit in our pews and kind of have a look over our shoulder being sure, I wonder if this guy's conversion is really what he says it is. I'm going to tell you now, if you examine my life 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I'm going to give you a time or two for you to say, I wonder if he's a real believer. Now, maybe that's not a problem for you, but it is for me. It is for me. I, I will give you material to make you wonder and say, wait a minute. Is that what a believer should be doing? We all still have that old sin nature. If that nature wasn't there, Paul would not have told us about it and said it's going to be a daily fight for you to live a sanctified life. And for us to look at other people and say, boy, your, your conversion must not have really stuck. Let's do this again. Back up and do it again. Start over. No, I've already put, my faith is already in Christ Jesus. I'm still like that old cliche, and that's what we turned it into. I'm an old sinner saved by grace. Yes, you are. You're still a sinner. There's no doubt that when Onesimus comes back to his master, he's not going to be a perfect believer and a perfect Christian all the time. But Paul is vouching for this man's character and he's saying, I want you to know you can receive this back, receive this man as a beloved brother, a runaway slave who just stole from you. I want you to take him back, not based on my apostolic authority, but based upon my prison bars, my chains for Christ. Notice Paul makes a very powerful statement that the communication of thy faith, if you give... Uh, sermons a title that's really the title today the communication of thy faith what is that that's a declaration of faith he says that the communication of thy faith or your faith philemon may become effectual effectual faith is faith that is never dead or inoperative it shows forth good works faith without works is dead no matter which way you slice it but Paul's acknowledging, Philemon, you have communicated your faith. And that by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. Paul is connecting verse 6 with verse 4 when he says here that Paul prayed that Philemon's faith was being exercised by good works and that his faith might be proved to be true. He calls it the communication of thy faith because communication of your faith is not just in the words and your profession of faith. It's revealed and evidenced by actual deeds that you do. The easiest thing for you to do is to say, I believe. I'm a believer. 
The most difficult thing to do is to actually live it out. And that your good works actually show. We understand faith is demonstrated by works. It communicates itself to the deeds which we do towards others. Now, those that say, look, I'm one of those, I'm one of those private Christians. I, I don't demonstrate my faith towards others. That can't be. That can't be so. There's this popular idea that say, listen, it's just, it's, it's just, just God, and, God and I get alone, and it's just God and me, and I, I don't really have to demonstrate it towards anybody else. No, James actually says in James chapter number 2, verses 17 through 20, he says, even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. And then that powerful scripture that we've used towards others, thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Now we believe that we cannot bring ourselves to salvation because we're dead. Then why would we believe that we could have faith that's dead? That our works don't have to show forth? No, it's a living faith. What we do for others, we do because that Christ has saved us and that the Spirit now dwells in us. And as we read there in Philippians a few moments ago, every good thing that we as a believer do or the good that we do for others should be acknowledged as Jesus Christ, who is the source of all love, is the source of grace. What we do in our love towards others is because Christ dwells in us and we give Him all the glory for it. And then look at verse 7. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. Now, that word brother is a sign of connection. Can you get the door for me, Skylar? Somebody please, thank you. Uh, it's plain enough that Paul's simply saying here that he had great joy because Philemon had ministered relief and comfort to people in need. But Philemon was not just a person that relieved physical needs, but he was also one that dealt with their spiritual needs. This communication of the faith, we'll, we'll deal a little bit more with this next week, sometimes signifies communion. Uh, there's a mutual communion and a mutual communication between those of us who share the same faith. Every time we gather together, we are declaring to one another a common faith that's between us. We affirm the same things. We affirm the same faith. But how is that faith demonstrated towards one another? It's demonstrated in the works that we do. True faith is effectual. True faith is never dead and inoperative. True faith is always shown by the working out of that faith in love. This letter, I think, over the weeks that we look at this, is going to teach us a great deal about how we ought to treat not only those who have been converted, but how we ought to examine our own life. And if we, are we or are we not demonstrating the fruits 
of grace. And the greatest way to demonstrate that is by our love for one another. So I'm looking forward to this study through the book of Philemon, and I hope you are as well. Uh, Let's finish by singing a familiar hymn, um, 125, 125.